Hello everyone. Before we start today's podcast, some exciting news for you. You can experience the Inside Politics podcast live in Dublin on May 16th when Hugh Linehan, Jennifer Bray and I will be joined by Cliff Young of Ipsos, one of America's top pollsters, to talk about the US election, our own local and European elections and much more. It's a breakfast event kicking off at 8am in Trinity College. If you'd like to attend, you can get tickets at irishtimes.com forward slash events. That's irishtimes.com forward slash events. I hope we see lots of you there. Hello and you're very welcome to this special edition of the Inside Politics podcast from the Irish Times. I'm Hugh Linehan. Before we start, I just wanted to mention again that we hope to record an Ask Me Anything podcast, which we're going to put up during the holiday period. The idea is that you can ask our politics team and and me also any question at all, and we're going to make our best attempt to answer it as honestly and comprehensively as possible. You can direct your question towards the podcast team as a whole or to a specific individual, and it falls to me to compile those questions so you can make them to me at hlinehan at irishtimes.com. That's hlinehan at irishtimes.com. Or you can at me on Twitter at hlinehan. We will look particularly favourably on questions which are sent in in spoken audio form. So do feel free to record your question and mail it to me as an attachment. Now, it is 100 years ago today that the people of the island of Ireland as a whole went to the polls for the last time to elect members of parliament in the House of Commons at Westminster. I'm joined today by Mary McAuliffe, who's assistant Professor in Gender Studies at UCD and by Dermot Ferreter, Professor of Modern History, also at UCD and an Irish Times columnist. And I first asked Dermot about a personal family story of mine. Dermot Ferreter, I want to inject a personal note into this. My grandfather, Daniel McMenamin, um, stood in Donegal West in the 1918 general election with the uh, strategic brilliance and sense of timing which our family is noted for. He stood for the Irish Parliamentary Party and was defeated by... Thomas Sweeney, who I think was the youngest um, person elected in the in the general election that year, and I think actually is uh, the second youngest person ever elected to uh, the Houses of the Oireachtas. Um, where did my grandfather go wrong? What happened to the Irish Parliamentary Party? And how extraordinary an election was this? Your grandfather didn't do badly at all, considering the first thing to note is that he stood because John Dillon, the leader of the Irish Parliamentary Party, was getting increasingly frustrated during the campaign that so many of the Irish Parliamentary Party potential candidates were folding up their tents and not contesting. And, of course, a big part of the 1918 election is is, is that aspect, that there were so many uh, uncontested seats and there were walkovers for Sinn Féin um, in, in many constituencies. If you take Munster, for example, there were 24 constituencies in Munster 17 of those constituencies returned to Sinn Féin candidate unopposed. There was no election there at all. And why was there no election? Why did all those Irish Parliamentary Party candidates not stand? Because they knew they hadn't a hope. They knew they hadn't a hope. But they were also an older party. People forget that. The average age of of an Irish Parliamentary Party MP in the 1880s when they were at the zenith of their power was 40. It was now 55. John Dillon was 66. They, They were old men. But they also saw the writing on the wall. But they also weren't used to contesting elections. In 1910, the previous general election, two-thirds of the Irish Parliamentary Party candidates had been returned unopposed. They didn't know how to contest elections. And interestingly, Swift McNeil, also in Donegal, who was an Irish Parliamentary Party MP, an older one, uh, he complained bitterly that he couldn't possibly contemplate the notion of canvassing (laughs) for votes as a favour to secure my election. He was appalled by the idea. Gives you a sense of the culture clash and the generational clash. But in, rega- in relation to Donegal, Donegal was very interesting because there were a lot of contests and there were four constituencies there, east, north, south and west. So your grandfather, Daniel McManamum, polled 4,116 votes and the Sinn Féin, you mentioned, he was actually Joe, Joe Sweeney, 
6,712. So that was actually quite a tight... Tight enough. It was a tight yeah. contest when you look at the overall uh, constituency profiles. So that was a very respectable result. So, Mary, in a constituency like like West Donegal, many other constituencies around the country. Um, this is an election in which the, the, the electorate has expanded by a factor of two or, or three mm-hmm. or something yeah. of that sort. In towns like, you know, Glenties and Ardra, there are uh, women over 30, there are shop assistants, there are tenant farmers who are voting for the, fir- for the first time. How does that change the dynamic, the political dynamic of canvassing, campaigning, getting elected? Well, um, you know, the women bring in their own dynamic with it. And it's not just the women that are voting or indeed the young men uh, that are voting. It is those who are canvassing, who are campaigning, who are postering. Because if you take Common Amon, for example, most of them outside of the executive are under 30. So whatever their class, they're not going to be able to vote anyway. And yet they throw their energies full uh, tilt into campaigning for Sinn Féin. And I think in many ways as well, Sinn Féin brings a dynamic to it that, as Dermot said, the Irish party was returned unopposed. It had achieved many of its aims through its electoral politics uh, over the previous generations. The, the the final big one, of course, being Home Rule, was theoretically there, although it hadn't been uh, uh, brought into practice. Uh, and so their, their main aims was to get Home Rule going and to survive as a party. Um, they didn't really have anything new to offer the electorate. They just were running on their look at what we've done. We've, we, you know, went through the land wars, uh, got, you know, got uh, um, the, the social uh, classes and, and um, housing uh, was brought in by them, all sorts. Of, and, and the social changes that would happen, that happened over the previous generations, they could claim uh, a lot of that. Well, we know that, you know, Eaton Bread is soon forgotten. Eaton Bread is soon forgotten. And of course, Sinn Féin then is offering, is running on uh, the proclamation. Uh, it's running on a new agenda. It's going to, uh, it, it has this ideological uh, imagining of a new republic. It is um, appealing to young voters, to the new generation. The generation that had rejected really the conservative, moderate even, politics of it of well, the previous a, it's generation. It's a downright revolutionary party. It's not just a radical party. It's a revolutionary party. Oh yeah. I mean at this stage it is. It, it is no longer Griffith's party. It's the party of, of the, the hard men. It's the party of the men who are in jail. And of course one of the really interesting things I think about the election is that deliberate policy of running uh, candidates who were in jail by Sinn Féin because then of course you can show these are people who have suffered mightily and sacrificed for their politics for their ideology uh, you can construct the Irish party as the party uh, who sent young men off to war uh, even though they had participated in the anti-conscription campaigns in 1918, they didn't really get the benefit of that. Sinn Féin managed to sideline them on that. I mean, so some we, people characterise this as a conscription election, is that? Well, it's probably reductionist, uh, but it's partly true, isn't well, it? Well, it's partly true, you know, conscription had been such a big uh, issue during 1918. I mean, one of the, the, the biggest days outside of the, the April uh, strikes against conscription was Lawn Amon. June the 9th, 1918, when two thirds of the women of Ireland signed an anti-conscription pledge saying women won't blackleg. Um, And uh, so here you have a young population, the women already galvanised, already used to uh, campaigning for issues. And they are throwing their, their energies through the Irish volunteers, which are now becoming the IRA and coming them on and the Irish Women's Franchise League. Don't forget the suffrage organisations. Mm. They're all they're still there as well. And they're still campaigning because, of course, this is just a, a vote for women over the age of 30. They, there is a property qualification. And there is a property well. qualification. Of course, Sinn Féin also promise 
uh, that women, uh, if they come to power and they set up government in Dublin, they are not going to to go into Westminster, uh, that women will get the vote on a par with men. Under- I didn't realise until I saw it in your Twitter feed in the last couple of days that the Irish Parliamentary Party um, had, had opposed the legislation. Oh, very much. Yeah, uh, yeah. yeah. Um, I did them damage during the election. Oh, huge damage. I mean, Dylan was yeah. uh, ferocious yeah. in his denunciation <laughs> of the idea of women having the vote. And, and it did damage them. Uh, and the eat and bread theme is interesting because yeah. John Dillon's correspondence throughout the campaign is fascinating um, because he can see the way he put it actually before the election that the party already knew in its hearts it was beaten. But he's still very angry at the idea that everything they achieved, and this is the way he describes it, everything we have achieved since 1879. And he picks that date because it's the beginning of the new departure and the mm. uh, alliance between the uh, Land League uh, agitators and the Irish Parliamentary Party. And you mentioned housing and welfare reforms. And, you know, the, the idea of abstaining from Parliament is a novelty. And Sinn Féin has to communicate what that means. Because the point that John Dillon and the Irish Parliamentary Party are making is that abstention is a policy of lunatics because you can't get anything done. How can you conserve your, serve your constituents? Um, and, and we've achieved all of this. But you can also see in, in the language a certain panicked snobbery. Thoughtless and ignorant young men are turning to Sinn Féin is the way John Dillon describes it. Moonstruck young enthusiasts. And there's, a, there's an idea that these are people not educated in public life. That's also another phrase he uses. So you can see there the, uh, the snobbery uh, and the depiction of these younger voters mm-hmm. as thoughtless and ignorant. To what extent is there, I've been watching you know, this you know, decade of, of commemorations, as it's called, unrolling over the last, the last few years. I'm looking at this moment in particular, um, the, just at the end of the First World War. To what extent should we think of this a bit more in the framework of what's happening in small countries across Europe. Well, in course, November 1918, there's six or seven countries which emerge from the, from the, yeah. from the ashes of various empires. I mean, Sinn Féin was very clear uh, on certain things in its manifesto in 1918, um, that it would set up a constituent assembly of its own and abstain right. from Parliament, that it would use um, its influence to uh, carry the demand for a self-governing republic to the peace conference. Mm-hmm. This, you know, we have to go international with this. We have a message as a small nation. Uh, we're going to try and convince mm-hmm. the president of the United States, Woodrow Wilson, to make good on his promises about self-determination. So they do frame it in that way. And even during the election, an awful lot of Sinn Féin propaganda is built on the idea of the potential of smaller nations. Mm-hmm. Here's what has been done. Because it's really happening, isn't it? There are parliaments, new parliaments springing up mm-hmm. in everywhere from Belgrade to Prague to Vilnius. Oh, yeah. Because you see the breakup of empire, like the Austro-Hungarian yeah. empire yeah. is breaking up. So all of those small nations are emerging and yes, disputed boundaries. I think those disputed boundaries are still impacting on us today because mm-hmm. of course, in the end, going to the peace conference uh, didn't deliver anything. You know, uh, Britain wasn't going to allow uh, the peace conference to to detach Ireland from its empire because they were the victors in this case. Well, indeed, they weren't in exactly that. Certainly, as they saw it, they weren't in the same position as well, Austria, Hungary, no, or Russia. Wilson uh, was not going to apply uh, self determination to Ireland because no. he was much more concerned about his relationship with Britain. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so there were you know there were many caveats there, and of course, De Valera spent. 18 months in the United States. Mm-hmm. Uh, he left early the following year in February 1919. He's there until um, uh, December the following year. Um, and he realises that this, has to, this campaign has to be bigger than Ireland. As some would argue he felt he spent far too long there. He raised an awful lot of money, but he didn't get that crucial recognition. Mm-hmm. You know, you've sympathy from the House of Representatives and the Senate in relation to this Irish quest. But 
they don't succeed in getting any commitment from, from Wilson. And of course, the election then is also seen as a mandate for a retrospective mandate for the rising. Yes. And then don't forget, they also said that uh, as well as going to the peace conference, that they would also continue to fight in what, with whatever means uh, necessary to break the link with Britain. So yep. that whatever means necessary is also important because, of course, when the, the whole peace conference uh, thing doesn't work out, they are justified. And, and, and of course, trying lives. to interpret what that phrase meant, because as part of Sinn Féin's manifesto, any and every available means yeah. to render impotent the power of Britain to hold Ireland in subjection. What did that mean? Mm. I mean you could interpret that in a number of different but ways. But the key thing, isn't it? And, you know, there are, there are still people in this island who hark back to the first doll, to the people mm. elected in this election as giving them legitimacy for, for, for carrying out violent acts mm. on this island. Mm-hmm. Well, there's very few of them now. Well, there, yes. there's still, but, but, there, yes. but there was. There, yes. there, there, had, there, there have been. But I think there's more that claim that uh, um, taking a stand on abstention is a historic uh, precedent there, so they will well, continue. Which they still have yeah. to defend to this yeah. day, particularly yeah. in recent times. But, it, but essentially, the, the, the result of this election is taken as the democratic legitimization of what we now call armed struggle, should that prove to be necessary. Well, no, yes, that, that, well, that, that would be disputed uh, by many. You know, um, Now, you've got to distinguish here between Sinn Féin as a political party and the wider Republican mm-hmm. movement stroke mm-hmm. campaign. And one of the interesting things that happens in 1918 is that the Irish volunteers become more assertive, partly as a result of the conscription crisis. Um, and in August of 1918, on Tugluck, which is the, the manual or the journal of, of the Republican movement, declares that the volunteers are the agents of national will. And that's not the Sinn Féin political party. One of the complications as you go into the new year in 1919 is who's who's in charge? Mm-hmm. You know, is it the volunteers? Are the volunteers running the show or is it Eamon de Valera? There are an awful lot of volunteers who have no time for politics and no interest in politics. And even when the War of Independ- Independence begins in a military way, it's not authorised by the politicians. Mm-hmm. And even when there's an attempt to try and get the volunteers to declare allegiance to Doyle Aaron, there's an ambiguity about how yeah. many, many of them actually do it. So, you know, there, there's a lot of, of um, uh, difficulty in terms of, of, of control and centralisation and, you know, the, the politicians trying to control the volunteers, what is evolving into the IRA. Mm-hmm. So right. when you talk about mandates, you know, uh, it's much more complicated than saying the 1918 uh, election result is a mandate for the War of Independence. Although, but, well, then I'd say it, it gave people the opportunity to claim that there was a mandate. Of course it Oh, did. yeah. Yes. Absolutely. Yeah. And I mean, even when uh, the first shots, as we call them, are fired in Salahed Beg, that, that was an unauthorised... I mean, who decided to carry out that mm. uh, attack in Tipperary? Um, as Dermot said, who's, who's actually wagging the dog or wagging the tail at this stage? Uh, and it, it kind of fluctuates between them. And then de Valera takes himself out of the picture, which... He had a tendency to do, I suppose, at various times uh, during during this process. Um, And so actually 1919 is an interesting year in which things are changing and evolving. It's not necessarily still uh, absolute that it will degenerate into a full scale guerrilla warfare until later on. But of course, the crucial point is, how is the British government going to respond when you talk about a mandate? The crucial point is that Britain does not recognise the legitimacy of Sinn Féin's mandate arising out of this election. And remember, we're talking about the Irish part of a wider UK election. There were over 700 seats mm-hmm. uh, in Westminster. David Lloyd George has his own battles to fight. I mean, he's in a very unusual position in that, that he's Prime Minister of a coalition government. It's a strange patchwork really of political have, parties in but Westminster. he doesn't really have point, a party. I mean, the mm-hmm. quip was that after the election in 1918, David Lloyd George was a Prime Minister without a party. 
uh, because the Liberal Party are not faring particularly well. But it was fought by David Lloyd George and his Conservative colleagues. Um, it was fought. They fought it as a coalition government. Um, so but there were non-coalition conservatives and non-coalition exactly. liberals fighting. Yeah. Well, you see, well. in many ways, they had it. Kind of took them by surprise. I they didn't expect the war to end as quickly as it did. In in the end, so in many ways, they they had started uh, planning for an election as a war cabinet, and then the war ends. Mm-hmm. I think they they mostly that they thought the war would end go on into twenty or nineteen nineteen, maybe nineteen twenty. They knew they were on the trajectory towards winning it, all right, uh, with the Americans um, in in it now. Uh, but and then it ends, and, and they, they have, have to immediately a very call, very they have to immediately short call time. an election because there hasn't been an election, election since since, yeah, since yeah, 1910. The yeah, world has yeah. has been transformed Absolutely. in those eight and they years. Have to call an the election well, what's their priority after? This is the interesting thing. I mean, we shouldn't assume that Ireland is high on the priority list of David Lloyd George. Mm-hmm. It's not remotely. No. There's very little engagement. Uh, over the course of, of the first half of, of 1919. David Lloyd George wants to swan around Europe on a lap of victory. You know, and he goes off to the Paris Peace Conference. He's not interested uh, in Ireland. He's interested in, obviously, hobnobbing with Wilson and, and other European uh, leaders uh, to try and decide the post-war international order. Mm-hmm. And they're going to ignore what's going on in Ireland. Now, that does come back to bite them, but it's not a priority. And even if you look at the cabinet minutes for that period in early 1919, there's no substantive uh, discussion on Ireland until much later and to in the what year. extent does the fact that Sinn Féin was an abstentionist party impact on that? Because the previous 50 years of parliamentary politics at Westminster are influenced profoundly by this block of Irish nationalist uh, vote, votes, which are very often required in, in order to form a government. And that's just... The tablecloth is whipped out from under that all of a sudden. Yeah, but they don't take it seriously. Britain doesn't take abstention seriously. And, I mean, you can see the sneering editorials in British newspapers when the first Dáil meets in, in January 1919. You know, they're completely contemptuous and dismissive uh, of this silly little assembly, you know, and the delusions of grandeur that these uh, Sinn Féiners have. So they don't really take it seriously. Uh, what becomes more complicated over the course of 1919, of course, is the beginning of the military campaign. And eventually... Uh, in uh, later in 1919, Dáil Éireann is proscribed as an illegal assembly. Um, so but it takes them quite a while. It does to take them, the, yeah. And and to prescribe both the IRA and coming them on and uh, um, and actually respond to what's going on because, as Dermot said, like their their view is turned towards Europe, towards the international order, towards other issues in post-war Britain that they have to deal with, uh, and towards jockeying for power and position. Plus also, I think there's a class element as well. An awful lot of the Sinn Féin candidates are not your old style Irish parliamentary party type candidates who would be more upper middle class. Mm. Um, they are working class men, they're lower middle class. Uh, so there's a real snobbery element in it as well uh, in dismissing, you know, paddy well, Irishmen. Are, the crucial thing as well is, is there are now two Irelands arising out of the December 1918 election result because the unionists do well. And it's quite clear that there's Ulster and then there are the three southern provinces. So from the British government's perspective, they're not going to engage with Republicans until they've solved their Ulster question. And there are influential individuals involved still in in the British cabinet after the 1918 election, including Walter Long, who was originally a leader of the Unionist Party, who's chairing their cabinet committee on Ireland. Uh, And James Craig is influential as well, who's at this stage, you know, beginning to take precedence over Edward Carson. Carson's kind of on the way out Mm -hmm. at that stage. He's an old rebel himself at that stage. So they're very influential in uh, Unionist voices at cabinet level. 
Uh, and by the end of 1919, you have the emergence of the semblance of a plan for the partition of Ireland. So that's where the action is. Um, and there's going to be no engagement with Sinn Féin's mandate, as they call it, mm-hmm. until there's some kind of resolution of the Ulster question. But you're looking at the increasing likelihood after this election result of a partitioned Ireland. I mean, accepting the point, Mary, that, that Sinn Féin and the other elements of the of the Republican movement at the time, including, you know, coming them on, the Irish Volunteers, um, are, are, are not a completely cohesive organisation. But you do have, from a democratic point of view, you have one large embracing overall nationalist party just replaced almost like for like by another large all-embracing nationalist party and the ways in which democracy usually reflects things like class divisions or ideological divisions are effaced yet again. There is no significant Labour Party, for example, as a result uh, yes. of this election. Yeah, and of course, and, and that's the big mistake Labour makes. Uh, I mean, they they had were on a trajectory to stand and, and perhaps would have done well in maybe the urban uh, uh, constituencies they had actually chosen Louis Bennett, for example, um, to be their one of their women candidates. Uh, and then they decided to stand aside and Labour will wait. And, and the argument could be made that I suppose Labour is still waiting um, uh, to make any real impact. And in many ways, because they decided not to stand in the 1918 election, they allow Sinn Féin to become the, the all uh, embrace, uh, embracing, all representative uh, organisation uh, in the constituencies outside of North East Ulster. Um, a lot of pressure on them as well, though, isn't it? Oh, there was, yeah. And of course, Connolly being dead. And, and mm. like, they're, they're, they're trying to find their way back to who I they mean, were and what they were and what they represented well, I mean, as Sinn well. I mean, Sinn Féin are going after Labour uh, to stand aside, you know. And the yeah. way de Valera put it, let's not get involved in side issues. You know, side issues being the Labour question, socialism, yeah. welfare, uh, all of that, social issues generally. Um, And the idea was that if Labour stood, first of all, they would take votes away from Sinn Féin. There's no Mm. doubt about that. And they had demonstrated considerable muscle during the conscription campaign because the Labour movement is very much a part of that. Uh, But that they would take votes away from Sinn Féin and that that would compromise the idea of this election as being essentially a referendum on the national question. And Mm. there's pressure put on them. The Labour Party convene a special assembly. They vote not to contest the election by 96 votes to 23. That's an emphatic vote. But there were also divisions within the Labour movement about whether they should be focusing on the idea of building up a parliamentary party or building up trade union membership, Mm -hmm. because that's a a real focus of people like William O'Brien, a trade union leader. Um, So the party has divided itself. I'm not so sure that not contesting 1918 was the big devastating mistake that the Labour Party uh, made, because in 1922, in the general election of June 1922, the Labour Party does very, very well. Uh, there was an appetite there for, for bread and butter issues. What happens to the Labour Party is that they get squeezed out again because of the civil war polarities. Well, it's similarly with women, isn't it? it women is. do very yeah. well in the the next elections. Like you have won in 1918, but then the next election you have five other women candidates joining uh, Markovic. Mm. And again, it's civil war that uh, that creates the divisions because, of course, all the women TDs are anti-treaty. And after that, then... Women's Sinn Féin issued publications during the general election campaign in 1918 about the Labour question. I said, there's no yeah. need for a Labour Party yeah. in Ireland because we're the Labour Party. And they maintain that Labour was well, erroneous. And that has been the Fianna Fáil argument ever oh, since, yeah, hasn't yeah, it? Uh, yeah, carried well, it a very, yeah. There's a, the continuity well, Sinn Féin that, were all things to all yeah. people. The well, Labour Party, women. The Labour Party was erroneous in its appeal to the workers as a class because the workers of Ireland are not a class. They're the nation. And Sinn Féin is the party of the nation. So they, they produced these pamphlets, Sinn Féin and the Labour question, people, propagandists like Ed, the Blackham. Um, and that's the way they spin it. 
So you can see the difficulty for the Labour Party. Uh, they didn't want to be, uh, or Sinn Féin would have accused them of, of being class warriors at a time when there needed to be a focus on the national question. And you can see that reflected, that whole kind of encompassing thing, reflected in the Democratic Programme for Government of 1919, which gives everything to everybody uh, and obviously was never um, engaged with really because, you know, of, of changing circumstances. And also because Sinn Féin actually wasn't representative it's of... It's a little of pat the in the back for, to Labour for not contesting the election yeah. as well, yeah. isn't it? There's things in life you just can't control, like the weather, the traffic, or the fact that spilled coffee seems to love white shirts. But it's all good, because there's something you'll always be able to control, your company's finances. SAP Concur integrates all your business's expenses, travel and invoicing in one simple solution, giving you the visibility and control you need to drive your business forward. SAP Concur. It's how the best-run businesses make their expenses run better. Learn more at concur.co.uk slash control. Now, in 2018, the women's right to vote in, in 1918, this is being framed very much as the most significant part of the election. Is that more to do with where we are now in 2018 than the reality on the ground in 1918? I'm, just, I'm struck by the fact that, for example, in the UK, there's not the same focus on this historic moment as there seems to be here. I, I think, well, yes, we uh, because, you know, commemoration is about reflecting backwards from the standpoint of the day you're in from our contemporary sure. standpoint. So, of course, this is a moment in which feminism is having uh, a resurgence, thankfully. Uh, and we're looking back at 1918 as, uh, you know, the first time women get the vote. But you have to remember as well, now young men are getting the vote. This extends the franchise as well to young men uh, and to men who served in the war over the age uh, of 19. So that is a huge enfranchisement of young men without the property qualification. So a huge expansion of class. Uh, 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 working class men can vote. So that is that has a huge impact as well, more so probably in Britain, um, because, of course, 17 women ran in Britain. Not one of them were elected, including Christabel Pankhurst. So the women's vote there doesn't have the same impact. And in many ways, you know, Markovic isn't elected because she's a woman, but because she's a Sinn Féin candidate and had been, you know, a hero of 1916, had been condemned to death, although that, that, that because of her gender, that wasn't carried out. Uh, she was in prison with the rest of them. So she fits the uh, Sinn Féin candidate profile, you know, an imprisoned uh, hero of 1916 uh, who's running for election. Her gender may be even slightly secondary to that. I just wonder about the ways in which the... the, the the nationalist moment, as it was in 1918, is blurred in our collective memory now with this moment, this moment in the, in the long struggle for, well, uh, for, so for, for equality a, a for blurring. women. blurring. I mean, our commemorative focus, it's like it's a decade, and we're talking about a decade uh, in which the state came into being, and it's a young state. I mean, in contrast to Britain, you know, Britain prides itself on, on having the mother of all parliaments mm -hmm. presiding over this state that is much older, uh, that they don't need to be marking these little pygmy uh, centenaries <laughs> Uh, because they're so steeped in uh, civilization and antiquity, uh, which is why it's, it was highly amusing during the week to, to hear Conservative MPs coming on Irish radio to apologise for the incompetence of their party mm -hmm. and the embarrassment <laughs> that's being created. But that's part of it, you know, that they are not part of that same trajectory that yeah. we're looking at. No, but the women's suffrage movement and, and the women's movement in general continues continues the struggle to this, to this day. Um, it's, yeah, but, it's not a nationalist but, but movement. Also, it's, a, it's a pan national oh, it movement. Is. It's, it's an international movement. movement. And there is a lot of commemoration going on in Britain itself, not so much um, 
on the way we're doing it on this mm. national scale. Uh, but through the universities, through local organisations, uh, there's a statue of Emmeline Pankhurst being unveiled. Um, there have been loads of conferences, of lots of um, online exhibitions and, and physical exhibitions. So there there is quite a lot going on, but not in the same yeah. way we're but doing they're it. They're also engulfed at the moment in crisis. In Brexit, yeah, yeah, obviously. Yeah, British yeah. politics is, yeah. is seriously in crisis at the mm. moment. And of course, and the, the, the ending of the war as well is more important in many ways. Yes, that's a huge uh, factor, yeah. isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. But, but yeah. that's been controversial too uh, in, in the way that history has been taught. I mean, you take individuals like Michael Gove uh, when they were in, in, in power and, and presiding over education at the time of the centenary, the outbreak of the war, and there were testy exchanges between historians and government about what mm-hmm. should be taught uh, to English students about the war and what it meant and what its legacy is. And they were, you're right, much more focused on that and yes. what it means where does it fit into Britain's national story mm-hmm. sure some sure. would say national decline you know what you know is this the beginning of the end uh, for Britain because what you're dealing with at the end of the war and Ireland is very much a part of that uh, process of decolonization mm-hmm. and challenge uh, to the British Empire and challenge to its international standing um, and of course what happens in, in subsequent decades is that is played out uh, and that could still, it's still, it's still being played exactly. out today in terms yeah. of Brexit. Yeah. You know, part of that Where's the, the Brexit itself? is that end point of of the the empire gone. Yeah. You know, um, and I think it's a it's a good moment to say. You know, we really need to be very conscious of what type of history is taught and how it's taught and why we should be teaching histories in school, but histories rather than one national narrative in Britain, for example. The, the, the brilliance of empire. E- even recently, I saw a programme with, I think it was Jeremy Paxson, Paxman doing empire. Mm. Um, and while there was mention of, you know, some bad bits, mostly it was about, you know, we, we gave these people civil servants, uh, you know, a civil service, railways, civilization, Christianity, all that sort of thing. So that idea of empire as a progressive uh, thing um, I think it has been thought in uh, through British schools sure. and really you can see the impact of that. I wonder, looking around at the present day and the, the, the various uh, conniptions which are going on across these islands of, over, over which this, this election took place 100 years ago today, uh, we have political leaders in London, in Edinburgh, in Belfast, uh, but not in Dublin, who are women. I mean, mm-hmm. so, so there, is, mm-hmm. th- th- there is a sense of progress, although maybe it doesn't feel like it in the moment. Well, I think there obviously there is a sense of progress since 1918. And of course, we had uh, the passage of the bill um, last night through the door that will finally uh, put paid to the Eighth Amendment in the Constitution and give women in this country uh, full reproductive rights. Uh, although it, it, there are some issues with it, but basically we're on that route. Um, so, but that's 100 years later. We're still dealing with issues of equality and inequality. In, in society. Um, but I think we, you know, with gender quotas, for example, in the Doyle, we will inevitably end up, I hope, soon enough, rather, or sooner rather than later, with a, a, a woman Taoiseach. There is, there, I mean, there is a narrative about the 1918 election and indeed about the War of Independence, which is the narrative of um, the revolution denied or the mm. revolution betrayed, that, the, that the, the, the motives, the motivations and the objectives of those who were involved in this political project, many of them at least, uh, were not brought to fruition. In fact, were actively stymied by the free state. Well, that's partly as a result of what we're talking about. Um, when, you know, when you, I mentioned two Ireland's there earlier on. If you consider the uh, three southern provinces, 
uh, it's quite clear that, you know, Sinn Féin uh, sweeps the boards there with the exception of a handful of constituencies. And, and what ultimately evolves from that in political terms is the domination of Southern Ireland by, you know, the successor parties to Sinn Féin, initially Sinn Féin and then Fianna Fáil and Fianna Gael, a remarkable consensus. And you could see that, some people would see that in a positive light and that we've had a remarkable stable politics in Ireland over the last 100 years when you put us in comparison with other countries and the lurches and the excesses, not just of, say, the 1930s, but even more recently, that there's been a remarkable continuity. But you could also make the argument that that contributed to the Mm -hmm. stifling of the agenda that you're talking about. Uh, the revolution that never was, the social conservatism, the kind of state that evolved that ultimately allowed the introduction of an Eighth Amendment and and, and those kind of developments. So if you're taking that long view, uh, there are different ways of looking at it. I remember Mary Holland when she was working here in the Irish Times, you know, she came to the conclusion at the end of her journalistic career that, you know, civil war politics had actually been good for Ireland uh, because the fact that the political debate was rooted in whose grandfather shot whose grandfather meant that, you know, we were spared some of the um, uh, the extremes of what she called our more sophisticated neighbours. Now, what she was directly referring to was actually Margaret Thatcher. And Margaret Thatcher was trying to divide Britain very deliberately uh-huh. and you know, going after the unions and making assertions about there being no such thing as society. And she was making the point that we went for a kind of social contract and consensus instead. So she was trying to see the positives in it. Uh, and you can't can see that argument being made to this day. Mm-hmm. People who compare but, but even, current you know, political You know, though we have a degree of smugness at the yeah. moment about the, sure. you know, the, the stability here, say, in comparison. And to the social liberalism we have. Social liberalism. But, you know, yeah. that was hard one as yeah. well. But ultimately, the 1918 election, if we accepted it made partition more likely, partition also, you know, meant that this became an extraordinarily monocultural society. Mm-hmm. I mean, by the 1920s, Southern Ireland had a population that was 94% Catholic. Mm-hmm. And, you know, one of the forgotten stories, I think, of 1918 is the demise of Southern Unionism. Because the focus is understandably on Ulster Unionism. But originally, Unionism was Irish. It was mm-hmm. Irish Unionism. There was a very substantial Southern uh, Unionist minority. Uh, and they, they really get cut off and they get lost. So what we end up with during this period are really two uh, minorities cut off, you know, the Northern Nationalist yeah. minority. And you had a very interesting tweet about a woman called Anna Haslam, who yes, was an early yes. suffragette. She was, and yeah. who was in her 80s by the time of this Would election. have been, you know, the mid-19th century, the suff- suffrage uh, women who who um, campaigned for the right to vote through moderate lobbying um, uh, means and, and won some significant uh, victories like uh, the repeal of the Contagious Diseases Act, the local government the women to vote in local government in the mid-1890s, um, wasn't really um, supportive or, or didn't really like the methods of the militant suffragettes mm-hmm. from 1908. And she insisted on calling Hannah Sheehy Skeffington, Mrs. Skeffington. She, she wasn't um, given to that sort of radical combining your names to show equality. But she voted at 89 uh, so you think over a lifetime? And who did she vote for? Oh, she voted for um, Dockrell in the the Unionist candidate. Who was the union? Who was the Morris one? Dockrell the one in, in Unionist? Rathmines, is that yeah. fair to say the one, one Unionist candidate in what's yeah, now the twenty six yeah. counties? He was in Rathmines. Yeah, there's one in, yeah. in Trinity College, Dublin, yeah. mm-hmm. uh, and then of course there's the, the uh, William Redmond, the Irish yeah, Parliamentary yeah, Party. So they're the yeah, only three, three seats they win in the three southern provinces. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so um, apparently, a whole a, a lot of the suffrage women went with her to vote. Uh, even though she wasn't voting Sinn Féin and, and, and they would have you know, probably disagreed with her on that, with flowers and flags, apparently. But it was about honouring her commitment, as we do with many activists. Uh, even if you disagree with their politics in the end, um, 
her commitment to that fight for the right for women to vote and other fights with access to education uh, and many other uh, fights and, and activism she was involved in. So, and I think it's wonderful to see her at 80, 88, 89 going off to cast her first vote. But I do wonder, looking at it, the, the two countries which divided in our independence in, in 1922, the project seems to, taking on board what, what Dermot's saying about, you know, that there were pros to the way that the Irish political landscape developed. Um, the legislation which you're referring to in terms of uh, women's um, rights to the re- women's reproductive rights, mm-hmm. um, it took 50 years longer in, in Ireland for those to be achieved than it did in the UK. Um, so the project really did seem to stall uh, after after this bright start. Well, yes. I mean, um, as Dermot said, we, we become a, a monocultural society. You know, I mean, we forget about the, the other great power in our society, of course, is the Catholic Church. And the Catholic Church has, uh, once the Irish Free State is set up, has control of the education system, um, the healthcare system. Most social policies that are introduced are do- uh, dominated by Catholic ideologies on social policy and particularly the position of women and control of women's bodies and fertility and reproductive rights, all of which are are dominated by the ideologies of Catholic social thinking. Uh, And so that impacts on women's position within society. You can see in 1922, uh, women aren't mentioned in the Constitution. It gives uh, full and equal citizenship based, you know, to everybody. Uh, By 1937, women are in the home that article in the Constitution that we still have. But between 22 and 37, you have that chipping away of women's right to work in certain areas, to take to enter the civil service, you get the marriage bar. Then the censorship acts um, um, uh, prevent uh, information being um, gained on contraceptives and then make them illegal. So it's uh, controlling women through their uh, participation in the workplace, but also through the reproductive body. And that becomes part of the ideology of this country until uh, until yesterday, well, I suppose, well, in many ways. It's remarkably gendered. You can see it in the 20s. The Civil War has profound consequences, I think. Mm-hmm. You can see the language that is being used in the 1920s. And it's, it's a violent language and it's a gendered language. There are Lenten sermons delivered in, in the early 1920s, the collapse of chastity uh, and the dangers to Irish moral purity uh, and in a sense, the he church... Was of jazz. Yeah, yes. but in a sense, the and church... Smoking. You know, the church does uh, move into a vacuum that is created is. as a result of the Civil War. Uh, and there's a strong sense that, OK, women, you've had your time in the sun now during the tumultuous revolutionary period. It's time to get back to normal. And normal is what we are outlining It's a very here. common post-war reaction. But it is, and I was going to say that. And there, there are also Irish versions of what are happening internationally. Mm-hmm. I mean, there, like you mentioned earlier on about the importance of the First World War. You know, women were moving into spaces that had been denied to them uh, before the war. Um, and there is a backlash to that. And it's not just in, in, in Ireland. You can see it in other places. There are moral panics, what we would call well, moral uh, panics. You know, the rise the of fascism is, is in part, has, has an element of that as well. Like uh, fascism is about women in the in the domestic space as well. And that whole idea that the moral order has been overturned, we really need to get back to, to a, that golden... But so many, you know, we're doing it again today. So many uh, right-wing um, uh, conservative... Uh, politics is about going back to some lost golden age where everybody knew their place, where women were Which in the It's a home. myth anyway, of course. Yeah, it, yeah. Uh, it's always a myth, but it, it's a powerful myth. Finally, if you, if you wouldn't mind, um, Fintan O'Toole last weekend wrote about this uh, election as um, 
a very important landmark because it's it's a high point of democratic action in Ireland of universal suffrage arri- arriving, the entire Ireland voting for the first time. Um, I, I, I interpret what he was saying as almost a rebuke to the um, to, to the armed struggle tradition. That this is this is that this is a point at which we can say Irish democracy uh, shone at, at its brightest, maybe. Yeah, but you see, you can read backwards as well. Mm-hmm. There's no point in in, in using uh, the argument that we need to focus on this because it was a rebuke to armed activity. One of the things that we were trying to do um, uh, in relation to an RTE program that's being shown about the election is to imagine ourselves being there in 1918. Try and see this election through the lens of those who were involved in it, whether they were voting or standing for election or whether they were in prison. Uh, and remember, you know, over 30 of the Sinn Féin candidates were in prison at the time of the election. Try and see it through the lens of 1918 um, rather than through the lens of 2018. You know, we know what happened mm-hmm. afterwards. They didn't know that. And there was nothing inevitable about what happened. It wasn't clear in December 1918, and remember, there's two weeks between the polling day and the declaration of the results on the 28th of December. It was not clear what was going to happen next. We know what happened next. But I think we've got to accept this generation on their own terms. Of course, that we can come to conclusions about how you know, the military situation evolved and what it meant in the long term. And, and uh, you know, th- th- that's a very contentious subject. Uh, but I wouldn't be reading the 1918 election like that. We have no. to take it on its own terms. Last word from you, Mary. And also, it wasn't universal suffrage. I mean, women were still, uh, it was a class-based uh, female franchise. So instead of, of the vote now being um, based, uh, or exclusions being based on gender, it now becomes based on class for many women. Um, and so that continues. The suffrage campaign would continue. But also, as Dermot said, there was nothing inevitable about what happened in 1918, nor was it inevitable that 1916 would inev- would lead to a further war of independence. What happened between 16 and 18 is very important. And, and uh, you know, the trajectory is not obvious, even to the people who were there at that time. In many ways, they're kind of working by, uh, you know, the the... the skin of their teeth I suppose in many ways they, they don't really know where it's going this is a new era this is a new space that they're moving into they're replacing the old certainties but where is it all going to go we know where it went but they certainly didn't and, and they're just um, in many ways making it up as they go along Mary Dermot thanks very much for coming in and that's it for today's podcast thanks to our producer Declan Conlon remember you can subscribe oh, sorry let's do it again And that's it for today's podcast. Thanks to our producer, Declan Conlon. Remember, you can subscribe to us on iTunes or your preferred podcast provider. Uh, You can also find us at irishtimes.com slash podcasts. You always welcome your views and uh, also welcoming your questions for that Ask Me Anything, which is coming up. You can mail me at hlinehan at irishtimes.com or you can always find me on Twitter. Until the next time, thanks for listening. 